Indeed, a great time of singing, and now we get to turn in God's Word to the book of 1 John. And But before you go to 1 John, turn over to Matthew chapter 19. I want to use Matthew 19, the story of the rich young ruler, to introduce our topic tonight. Oftentimes I've wondered why people have pursued religion. For some, it's a pursuit of filling in any gaps that they are missing, and that is a classic example here in in, um, Matthew's account of the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19, and starting in verse 16, Matthew records it like this. He says these words, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And young men said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Stop right there. You have in this situation this young man desiring eternal life. He recognizes within himself that he is missing something. He is aware of it and he pursues Christ asking Christ what it is that he is lacking. While possessing what he believes were all the right qualities, he is internally aware that something is missing. What is evident from this account that this isn't a problem of effort. Here was the rich young ruler coming to find Jesus and asking. It was not a desire problem. Here was the rich young ruler asking. How is it that one could be saved? What am I lacking? How can I gain fellowship? But what he realized as he was asking this question is that he did not have fellowship with God. He didn't have access to the kingdom. He was not entering in. And Jesus exposes that as he confronts him there. He exposes his love of money. But I don't believe that per se in this text, the love of money was the main issue for, for this man Actually, this man's greater struggle was the fact of his own self-righteousness. After Jesus laid out for him in there in verses 18 and 19, describing the commandments that he was to keep, his response was in verse 20, all these things I have kept. I've kept the whole law. I've done everything, everything that God would want of me, everything that's expected, everything that uh, God has demanded in his law, I have kept all of those things. Jesus uses the issue of money to show him 
that indeed he has actually fallen short, that he actually was not loving God and loving his neighbor as he ought because he was keeping back from caring for his neighbor as he ought to. And that's exactly what Jesus exposed there when telling him to sell everything and give to the poor. He said, all right, you're loving others? As he quotes here in verses 18, 19, all the verses that Jesus quotes were related to how to love your neighbor. He said, all right. You've loved your neighbor so well, then sell what you have and give to the poor. Something he was terrified to do. Now, the two observations I want to make out of this text that will help us head into the book of 1 John. The first is this, that even the natural man may desire fellowship with God. We've been seeing this in the beginning of 1 John. Even the natural man will have desire to be with God, desire to be in fellowship, awareness of eternal life, and even awareness that the one is outside of that eternal life. And secondly, what kept the rich young ruler from gaining eternal life was an unwillingness to see and acknowledge his condition. An unwillingness to see that he had fallen short. He had come to Jesus maybe wanting Jesus' approval of the path he was already on, had come to Jesus for various reasons, just as many had even come to the church looking for affirmation, looking for, for Christians' commitment that they're on the right path. He had come for a particular reason. He just didn't expect that what would Jesus would do would point the attention to his love or lack thereof. So all of this begs the question, exactly what the disciples ask right there in verse 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? If this man who had everything going for him, he had his youth, he had resources, he was coming to Jesus, and he can't be saved then who can be saved? Verse 26, looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Man cannot redeem himself, cannot deliver himself, but the very question that are on the heart and mind of the apostles is the very natural question that we are asking. Who can be saved? How are we saved? Well, that takes us to 1 John. John, who had that front row seat of that whole exchange. John, who could possibly remember that event and explain the details himself as being an eyewitness, is now talking here in 1 John chapter 1 about fellowship with God. How we can be saved. John writes, as we were reminded in singing time, that he writes in 1 John 5.13, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to make clear to us the way of salvation. That's why he's writing. And in this context, he has been laying out for us a fellowship with God, koinonia, how one can have unity, fellowship with God himself. And we've seen thus far, the message of our fellowship is the message of Jesus Christ, which has been proclaimed, as we saw in verses 1 through 4. 
This message was given to us so that we may have fellowship. And then last week, we noticed the members in this fellowship. Who are the members in fellowship with God? The ones who have salvation have the message. And the ones who are in fellowship are these. As first, we noticed it was God himself. We saw that in verse 5, that God who is light, in whom there's no darkness at all, he is the first and foremost member in this fellowship, which... John described back in verse 3, this fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God. He's the first in this fellowship. And then, of course, the second in this fellowship are those who proclaim the message. We saw that also in verse 3. What we have seen, we proclaim to you also. So the messengers of God who come with the gospel message, proclaiming that gospel message, they're in fellowship with God also. And then lastly, by implication, we who believe. We who have received the message. We are the ones who have received the gospel, believed the message of God, believed the testimony that has been proclaimed to us. We, by implication, are the third group that are in line here, the audience who have received the gospel, those who make the joy uh, of the apostles complete. So these are the members in fellowship. So we've seen the messenger of fellowship, we've seen the members in fellowship, and now we move our attention to the third category, and is this, the membership terms for fellowship. How do you enter into fellowship? What are the terms of entering into fellowship with God? And that's what's described from verses 6 through 10. 6 through 10 gives us the membership terms, and there are three terms to entering into fellowship with God. We'll get through the first tonight, and the next time together we'll look at the next two. But the first one is this. Members must walk in obedience. Members, and we see this in verse 6 and 7, must walk in obedience. The second one will be members must confess their sins. We see that in verses 8 and 9. And then lastly, members must acknowledge their sinful condition. Verse 10. This was the point in which the rich young ruler failed in verse 10. He was not acknowledging his fallen condition. When Jesus had laid out the commands of loving his neighbor, he said, I have no fault at all. Well, go sell all your possessions and give it away, and you find your fault immediately. Unwilling to do that, he was unwilling to demonstrate his love for his neighbor. He, he fails to acknowledge his own sinful condition. So three terms of entering into fellowship with God, and as I said, we'll look at the first tonight. It is members must walk in obedience. Notice verse 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As we start, and just by observation here, you notice that there are five conditional statements made in these verses from verse 6 through verse 10. In verse 6, he says, if we say. In verse 7, if we walk in the light. Verse 8, if we say. 
verse 9, if we confess our sins, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned. Five conditional statements in these verses. In these verses, John is bringing up a series of statements, some positive, negative, and he is demonstrating in these statements the terms of the agreement. The terms, again, I think in verse 6 and 7, there's a, pos- a negative and a positive. Verse 8 and 9, same thing, a negative. If we say we have no sin, but the positive, if we confess our sin, and then verse 10 stands alone. So we're taking 6 and 7 together, seven, or 8 and 9 together, and verse 10 stands on alone. So again, this is in these conditional statements, John is bringing out our terms of agreement for entering into fellowship with God, koinonia. That's again, if you look there in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship, koinonia, also in verse 7, Uh, We have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. All of this is about knowledge of our communion with God. Do you have it or not? What does it look like? How does one gain it? The very question the rich young ruler was asking, the very question is on the heart of the natural mind, uh, how do I gain access to God, is the very question that John answers in this text before us. How does one enter into fellowship with God? Or what does it look like to be in fellowship with God? First of all, how we enter into fellowship, we must hear the proclamation. That's why the message came. We saw that in verses, again, 1 through 4. As the message came and it was proclaimed, it was proclaimed to us that we would hear. And upon hearing it, we see the members in fellowship, and now we come to the terms. If I've received that message, if I have embraced it, what are its effects? Well, the first is this. It's a life committed to walking in obedience. I've talked to many people over the years who have claimed along the way that they have a special and unique relationship with God. And in talking with them about this particular relationship, if I were to call out anything that was inconsistent, their response to me would be just simply, God and I know each other. We're on the same page. And it's interesting that as seemingly that this special relationship, this unique relationship they have with God, means that they no longer have to follow God as God laid out in the Scriptures. They get to conduct themselves in this unique way. What I find contradictory as I ask them to say, well, if that is the case, then why did God say in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's what God says. Somebody who is in fellowship with him walks in the light. Some can come, again, with an empty life, with kind of no life-changing power, a life with empty of the presence of God, a life that's not demonstrating a sanctifying grace. John says that is contrary to God's messengers and God's message. For one who has embraced God's message, the result is they are going to walk in the light. 
John, again, speaking here, he's speaking to anyone who claims to have fellowship with God. So if we're going to claim in some sense that we have fellowship with God, we're walking with him, here's the first kind of test of evaluation for the terms. It is this, are you walking in the darkness or are you walking in the light? Now to understand this, just we have to start to get in and understand the particular verbs that John uses here. The first word, the verb there, walk. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The word walk here, just to parse it for us for a moment, a present active subjunctive. The subjunctive is where we get the if statement. It is a possibility, a a conditional statement. It is a statement in which we're doing an evaluation. Is it true? Is it not true? So it's in the subjunctive. But it is in the present tense, which means regular, continuous action, ongoing, unbroken, regular action. And it's active in voice, emphasizing the subject doing the action. So if we, as the subject, are regularly walking continually in the practice of darkness, we lie and are not practicing the truth. That's what John is saying here. The word for walk is the idea of the conduct of one's life, the practice of one's life. So if somebody is in the regular, continual practice of their life to walk in darkness, they're not of God. Immediate, a personal evaluation for where one is at is simply asking this, are you regularly conducting yourself on a normal conduct of your life, the regular, ongoing, active practice of your life to engage in the darkness? If it is, then John has the stern warning of then you lie and do not practice the truth. Again, this had to be For the rich young ruler, a conflict to walk away, stunned by the the harsh words of the Lord here, even for us, the awareness of one's own sin, these become heavy words. John gives a reminder here of one is to be regularly pursuing the Lord, walking walking in fellowship with God. Here, John, again, if we had to kind of evaluate it, say, how would one know that they're doing this? How would I know if I I was practicing walking in the darkness, if that was the, the normal practice of my life, how would I identify that? Well, here are some questions you could ask yourself as a way of kind of personal evaluation. Do I know if I'm walking in the light or the darkness? Well, ask yourself this. First question would be this. Is sin dominating your life? Are you a slave of disobedience? That whenever sin comes calling, you always give in to it. Normally, regularly, continually give in to it. Or do you break the pattern of sin? Can you resist sin? Can you break its pattern? Can you say no? Can you put off the deeds of the flesh? Can you yield in your heart to the Spirit? Can you put off evil? 
The one who is regularly walking in darkness is unwilling, unable to resist evil. He is dominated by the practice of sin. That's what John's describing here. One who walks in the darkness, the regular, ongoing, being dominated by the practice of sin. Let me ask you just even another way. Are you even reluctant to walk in the light? Are you desiring to walk in evil? The desire as well of regularly desiring wickedness would demonstrate a life that is dominated by ungodliness, an active desire to walk in sin. Uh, The contrast would be a heart that desires righteousness, a heart that desires purity, a heart that desires to, to put off the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. The life that is dominated in in the lie that John is exposing here is a life that wants to engage in evil and to live in it. Do we even care to put off sin in our life? These questions can expose immediately the heart that is either in a lie or in the truth. But notice how John expands this in verse 7. And he gives us uh, more of the positive side. That's the negative side. The negative side is we're putting off darkness. We're not consumed by the darkness. Here's the positive side. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I'll just stop right there for a moment. Here's the positive side. The active pursuit of righteousness And it's the exact same verbal form. You have a present active subjunctive. The subjunctive, the conditional statement. Is this happening? Active, the voice. You're regularly doing it. Present, it is ongoing activity. Present, ongoing, continual activity of walking in the light. This is the positive and John emphasizes as we walk in this light, we are having our fellowship with God. Just as God himself is light, God is pure, God is holy, God is righteous, God is without fault, God is without stain, he is perfect in all of his conduct, so the one who has embraced the message of God, who has embraced the idea of actively following God's footsteps, walking like God, living like God in the light, in the fellowship. Again, the emphasis here, the regular, ongoing practice. The emphasis isn't in the perfection of the work, but the emphasis is in the ongoing continuation of the work. Even like in verse 6, the emphasis isn't that you have sinned at some point in your life. The emphasis is on the regular, ongoing practice of sin. Here too, the emphasis isn't on a perfection of one's walk, but it is the regular ongoing practice, the direction of one's walk. John could have, in verse 6, when speaking about the darkness, could have spoken about any sin at all. He would have referred to that in either an aorist or a perfect sense saying, you have sinned, Eris, it's historical, it's provable, we can go back and see it. If that occurred, you were a liar. That's not what he's saying. Same thing here, in reference to the walking in the light, he's not looking for one particular moment we've shown a sign of obedience. 
but the ongoing and regular practice of living in the light. We have fellowship with God. Life, again, as one preacher emphasized, is not concerned about the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. An ongoing direction towards holiness and righteousness that is ever increasing and ever demonstrating that one is living in the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. We regularly live in this. And again, John goes a little deeper as he says all this of those who are walking in the light. John says that as we walk in this light, as we notice back in verse 5, we recognize those deeds are consistent with God. The message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. One might ask the question in regards to how, what does this holiness look like? And the simple answer would be, well, just look at the life of Christ. One wanted to say, well, how am I to conduct myself? What am I to do in this life of mine I, that I am to, to operate in? I just simply look at the life of Jesus Christ, how he loved God and loved his neighbor. I mean, certainly we can point to all the commands in Scripture. We can point to what God has called us to do, but it is modeled in its perfections in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was mistreated, he showed love in return. When he was tired, he demonstrated trust in the Lord, tirelessly, selflessly, sacrificially serving and caring, spoke gently, graciously, carefully, truthfully. He operated again in such a way that he demonstrated genuine care and love for all those who were under his ministry. Now, up to this point, Someone might say, okay, so it sounds to me like you're teaching a salvation by works. All you've said up to this point is be obedient, keep the law, walk in righteousness, be holy, and you'll be saved. It just sounds like you're laying out a list of righteous expectations that if I keep these and check off the boxes, salvation comes. Certainly that would have been the position of the Jews and most certainly the position of the rich young ruler. I have kept all those things from my youth. I've kept them all. I never murdered anyone. I, I gave to others. I demonstrated a love for my neighbor. And most certainly even the Roman Catholic would come along today and say amongst themselves, sure, yeah, God gave his righteousness, but we just complete it with our good works. So yeah, that's what God has done for us, but then we have to go those final steps and demonstrate that it's got our righteousness and God's righteousness infused together, and that what's, that's what makes us stand before God. And obviously, this is what John is telling us here. Walk in the light, walk in obedience. So, Pastor, it seems like that's what you're emphasizing. Just walk in obedience and make yourself right before God. Well, finish the verse in verse 7. Notice what he says. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
What gives us the ability to stand before God? It isn't our perfect life. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Blood of Christ shed on our behalf, the blood of Christ which has atoned for our transgressions is what makes us able to stand before God. Our works are not the prerequisite in order to receive the cleansing work of Christ. Our works are the response of one who has embraced the message of salvation, the message of Christ. It's Christ and his redemptive work, as we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Christ, who offered up himself as the propitiation. He's the one who has covered. He is the one who has gave entrance Our life now is a response to this redemptive work, the shedding of his blood, the cleansing that comes from the satisfactory work of Christ. That is what makes us able to stand. Our works are a response. They're not the cause of salvation. They're the result of salvation. And that's the emphasis here. Anyone then who has received the cleansing work of Christ, who has had their sins washed away by the work of Christ, does not return back to the darkness to continue in the darkness. Anyone who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ now sets their life to walk in the light, to walk in newness of light. We don't need a reformation to a broken life, to receive salvation from God. Nor are we at a point saying, okay, God, you've taken us so far, we got these last few steps that we will take care of this for you. No, it's entirely we enter into eternal life because of the work of Christ and what he has accomplished. This is what John draws our attention to in this marvelous text because he has brought for us again uh, brought us into fellowship with God this is the first kind of uh, again the first term for the entrance into fellowship we walk in the light not in the darkness let's look actually we've got a little bit of time we can look at the second one verse 8 and 9 Second term, entering into fellowship with God, is a term that uh, those who enter, members who enter into fellowship, confess. They confess sin. Notice what he says. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here is the second entrance point, is the acknowledgement, the confession of sin. That word confess there, in verse 9, if we confess, hamageo, is the idea of to say the same thing. If we say what God has said, if we acknowledge what God has said of us, if we confess sin, he is faithful and righteous to, for, to forgive. Verse 8 is the negative condition again, then if we say we have no sin. The one who cannot enter into fellowship is the one who will not acknowledge their sinful condition. It's not sin. 
was just a mistake. It's not sin. It was a, a misunderstanding. It wasn't sin. It was something else. It was a hereditary problem. Some physical problem. It wasn't sin. There was some other excuse for why I operated in that particular way. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The one who is deflecting from personal responsibility is in a downward spiral of self-deception. And as John says, the truth is not in us. The one who does not have fellowship then, as verse 6 and verse 8 imply, is the one regularly walking in darkness and saying he has no problem. This one has no fellowship. But we, verse 9, if we are confessing our sins... Saying the same thing as God, acknowledging God's standard, acknowledging God's ways, He is, then the promise, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love this word again, confess, because it is also present active. It is regular, continual confession. This isn't a one-time act of confession, but the normal practice and pattern of our life. The normal pattern of confession, of acknowledgement. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives. And in this forgiveness, takes our sin and takes it out of the way. Once again, when we go back to thinking through the uh, practice here, if we go back to verse 6, the one who is walking in darkness, regularly lives in that darkness, has no fellowship with God, deceiving himself, saying of himself he has no sin. And then even verse 10, another negative, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his truth is not in us. This is the one who has stubbornly resisted God's message. I'm not a sinner. It's not my fault. I have no reason to confess. It's not the problem with me. And this was the very practice of the rich young ruler. I've done all of these things. I've kept everything. Where's my problem at? The problem is you have sinned against the law of God. How do we practice then? Fellowship with God. We walk in the light, but we, and we have this, the blood of Christ cleansing us more than this, verse 9, we are confessing sin. We are going in and acknowledging where in thought, deed, we have, or belief, that we have moved away from the standard of God. Or we have, in this, uh, worked to uh, move and redefine his law we confess when we try to change his standard we confess when we have crossed his lines his boundaries and moved into unrighteousness and what i love about this here in verse 9 is the demonstration that forgiveness is readily available he is faithful and righteous to forgive Faithful in the sense that he is reliable, trustworthy. You know you can go to him for forgiveness. And righteous to forgive. He is able to do this without violating the righteous law. 
Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 explain that for us. Chapter 2, 1 and 2 talks about Christ as the propitiation. We'll expand that more later. For now, we recognize this, that as we come acknowledging our transgressions, our sins, confessing regularly, we recognize the faithfulness of God to forgive us these sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is back to the, the point. It's not our works that caused us to stand before God. It's not our perfect, obedient life that were the terms of membership, that is, if, as if you kept a perfect life and that made you right before God. It was not, well, just gear up, do better, and God will be happy with you and he'll receive you. No, we stand before God because we acknowledge his assessment of our life. We confess it. We acknowledge what you say, God, about us, about our condition, about our practices is true. Forgive us. And then let's do the one more, the third term. It's verse 10. The third term of agreement is the recognizing of our sinful condition. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Walk in the light. Confess sin. Acknowledge sin the true condition of your heart. One wants salvation. They must acknowledge their true condition. God, you were my enemy. I lived opposed to you. I didn't live for you. I lived against you. That was the natural condition of my heart. We have sinned. We are walking in unrighteousness before salvation. We are in rebellion If we don't acknowledge our sinful condition, then God, you're a liar. This is what gives one fellowship with God. They know their fallen condition. They know and acknowledge that condition. They have seen the fruits of that condition in their life producing the deeds of darkness. And recognizing the deeds of darkness manifested in their life, they don't suppress that truth. The redeemed one confesses it, acknowledges it's there, seeks God's faithfulness and righteousness to forgive, and then operates aware that he is cleansed from all unrighteousness, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Again, notice verse 9 and back in verse 7. Verse 9, to cleanse us from all sin. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are reconciled and brought near to God through the cleansing work of the death of Christ. So the natural result, we walk in the light. We walk in holiness and fellowship with God. We walk in obedience. So maybe the question would be then, what does walking in holiness look like? I've embraced the gospel. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I've confessed sin. I now walking in the light. What would this look like? Well, J.C. Ryle gives us in his book on holiness, he gives us 12 ways, 12 expressions of walking in holiness let me just give you a few of these, and you can 
go back and kind of evaluate your life. I remember, you don't look at these expressions of holiness to say this is what made me saved. You look at the redemptive work of Christ cleansing you and says, now I'm free to do these things, to live for him. What is holiness, J.C. Ryle says? The first is this. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. This is holiness. God and I share the same perspective. What the truth of God's word says, I believe and I think on. What God sees, I see. What God dwells, delights in, I delight in. What God would say, I say. I have one heart and mind with God. That's holiness. Secondly, A holy man will endeavor to put off every known sin and to keep every known command. I do not want to be unrighteous. I want to be righteous. This is the pursuit of holiness. Everything that God commands, I delight to do his commands. Thirdly, a holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. To strive to walk like him, to strive to, be, to reflect Christ and to do exactly what Christ would do in all circumstances and situations. And fourthly, a holy man will follow after meekness, long-suffering, gentleness, patience, kindness, and governing his own language and his own speech. Holy man is, demonstrates the gentle mercies of God. Fifthly, a holy man will follow after temperance and self-denial. He's not looking for his own gain. He is giving up of himself for others. He is denying himself, resisting. He is restraining his own passions and desires. He is regular, regularly practicing and comfortable with the idea of saying no to himself. No, I don't need that. No, I don't need that practice, that desire that thing. I can give up of that. Holy man is one who will follow after charity and brotherly kindness. He is not looking to uh, take advantage of the weak, the lowly. He is charitable, kind, merciful. A holy man will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others, caring for, building up, Showing mercy, not looking again to take vengeance, to pour out wrath. He's quick to forgive, generous in his offerings of mercy. A holy man will follow after purity of heart, not walking to unrighteousness and ungodliness, but walking to purity and righteousness. A holy man will follow after the fear of God, trembles at the Word of God trembles at the awareness of the greatness of God. He is constantly under the awareness of God's watchful eye, knowing he will give an account for all things. A holy man will follow after humility, not proud, self-exalting, but humble. A holy man will follow after faithfulness in all of his duties. Careful, excellent in all of his efforts, excellent in all of his uh, labors of life. He is faithful, reliable. And a holy man is one who follows after a spirit-mindedness, wanting again to dwell on the things of God. 
I love this. When John then talks about walking in the lights and having fellowship, these are the fruits that God produces, the fruit of holiness, the fruit of obedience, a life of regular confession, and a life that is acknowledging one's condition. So often, again, man wants to, in pride, self-will, not acknowledge the truthfulness of his own condition. Not really that bad. Not that far off. I just need a little tweaking. No, from God's vantage point, you have fallen infinitely short. You're in a state of rebellion. You're hostile to him. There's no hope. But to turn, turn to God, seek forgiveness. And he's merciful and righteous to forgive us all our transgressions. I guess next week, we'll come back. Next time we come back, we'll look at the marvelous work of Christ in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these verses and this testimony. For indeed, we are tempted to think that it is by our own efforts and our own labors that we enter into fellowship. But on the contrary, we enter into fellowship because of the marvelous work of Christ. Your message came. He sent out the messengers. Your messengers came in faithfulness and proclaimed it. And in that message proclaimed to us, we learned of the riches of your grace, your grace to redeem, your grace to save, to justify us. And we've called out in faith, believing upon your glorious name and your marvelous works, entrusting ourselves to you, and you deliver, and you forgive you alone have the power to forgive all transgressions. And in that, we give our lives entirely to you. Just as you laid down your life on our behalf, we laid down our lives on your behalf to give you all glory and all honor, to be conformed into your various image, to be transformed from within outward to live for your glory, not for our own self-exaltation. We ask whenever we fall short, whenever sin comes upon us, may we not turn back to our own self-efforts, but may we turn back to these very verses, confession and acknowledgement, knowing you are faithful and righteous to forgive. Our lives are now given to you to joyfully demonstrate the riches of your grace. So may all the members who have fellowship with you Follow these very terms of fellowship and delight in the riches of your grace, confident not in their own efforts, but confident in your lavish kindness and mercy poured out upon them. And as they minister to one another, may they not minister under the yoke of the law, but minister under the freedom that comes in the spirit and the freedom that comes in your grace. There would be joy in doing your will and joy in living in righteousness, and the joy of holiness filling their hearts and minds so that in all things you are glorified. So receive glory from us as we give our lives entirely to you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.